Would you please turn in your Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. I had an extraordinarily busy week in which I probably overexerted myself and feel tremendously weak right now as a result. And I don't say that to draw attention to myself, but to ask you to help me by praying for me that God would give me strength and a clear mind to preach His Word. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are but creatures of dust and clay. And Father, I ask that You would breathe into me the breath of Your Holy Spirit, that Your grace would be perfected in my weakness, that You would give me strength and a clear mind to think and say and preach what You want me to. Father, I pray that You would forgive me and clear my mind of every desire to look good, to sound good, to get glory from people. I pray that You would use the words that I speak to bring glory to Your Son, Jesus. Father, I pray that You would remove from us every distraction, that Your Spirit would come and wage war on those evil forces and the desires of our heart that are set against Your glory, that You would work in our hearts conviction and repentance, that our goal would be one, to see Your Son's glory increase. Father, that You would conform us into the image of Your Son. And that our only glory would be to glory in the cross of Christ. And that we would be willing to go unnoticed and persecuted if His glory would increase. I pray, Father, that You would work now in the power of Your Holy Spirit and for the glory of Your Son Revive us. Save the lost. And let Your Son's name have the first place in all things. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, there are two root desires that are at work in the heart of the universe and are in opposition to one another and have been waging war against one another ever since the fall of Satan and his demons, and ever since the fall of man. And those two desires are, first of all, a desire for the glory of God. A driving passion to see that God receives all the glory and honor and praise that His name rightly deserves. And the other driving passion is a jealousy of the glory of God. Not for it, but a jealousy of it. A hatred that God gets glory and a driving desire in the heart of fallen creatures to have for themselves the glory that only God alone deserves. And those two things have been at war against each other in fallen humanity and in the universe since the fall. The second sinful form of jealousy, the desire to have for oneself the glory that is God's alone, is what drove Adam and Eve to rebel 
When they were not content to be created in the image of God and to display His image, they wanted to be like God. Jealousy for His own glory motivated Cain to murder righteous Abel when he saw Abel receive approval from God that Cain did not receive. He killed him. Jealousy for his own, for their own glory is what motivated people to build the Tower of Babel. God's commission to mankind was fill the earth, spread out, have children, cover the earth, and display the glory of my image. And at Babel they said, let's build a tower that reaches to the heavens and make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered across the earth. And this has always been the opposition against God's anointed king. Saul tried to kill God's anointed king, David. When the praises were being sung, Saul killed thousands, but David has killed ten thousands. Saul did not say, yes, he is the anointed chosen king. Let him reign. Saul tried to murder him. Jealousy for his own glory motivated Herod to try to kill the Christ child. When the wise men showed up and said, where is the child that has been born king of the Jews? Herod did not say, let's let him have his place. Herod said, let's go and kill every child two years and under in Bethlehem to make sure this guy dies so that I can stay king. Jealousy for his own glory motivated Judas to betray his Lord. Jealousy for their own glory motivated the church to which James wrote in James chapter 4 to fight and quarrel and murder because they coveted and they desired and they could not have what they wanted. So they attacked each other. And God has always had a people, a, a faithful remnant, who have been jealous to see Him given the glory that He deserves. Jealousy for God's glory is what motivated Moses to intercede on behalf of rebellious Israel. Lord, Your name will be a mockery if You don't keep them alive. Jealousy for God's glory motivated David to go out and kill Goliath. How can he mock our God? Jealousy for God's glory motivated Phineas to spear the last idolater in the congregation of God's people. How can he bring a Moabite whore into the congregation and bring God's wrath on them? picks up his spear and he kills him. And God says, He's atoned for your sin because He was jealous with my jealousy. He was jealous for me. Jealousy for God's glory motivated Paul to suffer to preach the Gospel to the ends of the earth. And what we're going to see this morning is a difference in this passion between John the Baptist's disciples and what they want and John the Baptist and what he wants. Whose glory is the driving passion? And we will see why it is that Jesus Christ alone deserves glory. And the burden of my heart and the question I want to ask you this morning is, whose glory are you here seeking? As you serve in this church, whose glory, whose will, whose name, Whose increase do you want to see magnified? The glory of Jesus Christ or you? Whose purpose are you behind? The glory of Jesus Christ 
Or what will make you feel important? Well, Jesus and His disciples, we read, left the city of Jerusalem in verse 22, and they went out into the countryside of Judea. And they remained there. And Jesus stayed with them, and they were baptizing. And this shows us that Jesus had an early ministry of proclaiming the kingdom, the need for repentance and baptism, even before John was put in prison, we read. So this predates Jesus' Galilean ministry. It's His ministry in Judea. And John clarifies in the next chapter, in chapter 4, verse 2, that Jesus Himself did not baptize, but His disciples were baptizing. And John, we read, was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. So people were coming. It was an effective ministry. This tells us that both Jesus and John the Baptist had vibrant ministries that people were being attracted to alongside each other at the same time. John was there because water was plentiful. The name Anon means springs. It's a city with a lot of springs, a lot of water, and you have to have a lot of water to do baptizing because biblical baptism takes a lot of water. It's, the word baptize means immerse. If you don't have a lot of water, you can't immerse someone. Biblical baptism isn't pouring or sprinkling, but immersing someone, burying them in death and bringing them out to life. And we read that a discussion in verse 25 arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now John doesn't go into any more detail about this. He doesn't tell us what exactly about purification was the debate. But he uses it as a segue. This topic of baptism has come up and evidently it's drawn John's disciples' attention to the ministry of baptism that Jesus and His disciples have. And in particular, they seem to notice that Jesus is attracting more people to His ministry than John the Baptist and His disciples are attracting to theirs. And they go to Him and they say, Rabbi, He who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. So they knew who Jesus was. They knew what John had said about Jesus. They knew of His witness. They say, look, He is baptizing and all are going to Him. Apparently not all of John's disciples felt about Jesus and responded to Him the way earlier disciples had. You remember when John pointed out to his disciples, there's the Lamb of God, some of them left and followed Jesus. And the way they introduced Him to other people was, this is Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one spoken of in Moses and the prophets. John's disciples here speak of Jesus in a less respectful manner. They don't use His name, though they knew it. They say, Him who is over there with you across the Jordan. They don't speak of Him as the one that Scripture promised. They say He's the one you bore witness to. But look, John, He's baptizing and everyone's going to Him. These aren't the words of an enthusiastic supporter who's saying, Isn't this great, John? You said He was the Lamb of God. You said He was the Messiah. And now everyone's going to Jesus. This is great. Because the way John answers them is in the form of a rebuke. I've already told you this needs to be so. They shouldn't be surprised by this and they should not be upset by this. But you see, John the Baptist's disciples were jealous of Jesus because Jesus was increasing in popularity. You see, John the Baptist's disciples, their glory, their reputation was bound up with the reputation of their rabbi. If John's ministry increased, his disciples increased in stature. If John the Baptist decreases, 
John the Baptist's disciples decrease. And if Jesus and His disciples are increasingly popular in their ministry of baptism, that leaves less people for John the Baptist and his disciples to baptize. Which means their ministry must shrink as Jesus' increases. And their attitude is not, this is great. Messiah is getting more glory. More people are following Him. Their, their, their argument is, wait, wait a minute. Jesus and His disciples are intruding on our corner of the market. They're making our ministry grow less. Even though they, they exaggerate. There were people coming to them. It says that right there in verse 23. People were coming and being baptized when John baptized. But this episode is a good reminder that not everyone is thrilled with the glory of Jesus Christ. Not everyone, even in religious ministry, like John's disciples were doing, not everyone who serves the Lord is thrilled with the glory of Jesus Christ and like it when He receives more. Not everyone is happy to see Jesus Christ being given increasing glory and they don't all do ministry for that purpose. Many here in this passage and throughout the Gospel of John and throughout history have hated the glory of Jesus. Have been jealous of it. In fact, when we get to John chapter 11 and John raises Lazarus from the dead to prove that he is the resurrection and the life, the scribes and the Pharisees do not say, well, this proves it. He raised a man from the dead. He must be the Messiah. Let us follow this man. Here's what they said in John 11. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Their concern was that not that the Messiah is recognized and gets to reign over his nation but that the Romans might come and take away their place and their nation. Never minding the fact the nation belonged to God and His anointed. But what were they concerned about? Jesus is getting followers. This will threaten us and our stature. We need to kill Him. So after He raised a man from the dead, they began to plot to put Him to death. It was jealousy of the glory of Jesus. Well, John the Baptist's response is starkly different than his disciples. He makes clear their attitude is wrong. And instead of being jealous of Jesus, John the Baptist is humbly content with God's sovereign assignment of him and all others in salvation history. And he rejoices in Jesus' increase. That's where he finds his joy. He rests that God has given him his place to do his ministry. And he finds his joy in seeing Jesus be supreme. That's how you get free from jealousy, by the way. John says, a person cannot receive one thing unless it is given him from heaven. What does he mean? As His disciples are annoyed by Jesus gaining more and more followers at their expense, He means what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.7. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Look, everything we have is given by God. If God has given me a task to come before Jesus, introduce Him to the world, and then disappear from the scene, that's what God has given me. 
And if God has given to His Son Jesus a people from every tongue and tribe and nation on earth to give Him all glory and He gets to stand at the center of history, then so be it. God has assigned that to Him. Let me disappear. That's what I love. That's what John says. In other words, he says everything that we have and are given is given by God in heaven, including our particular ministry, including our station in history. You know, John could have said, you know, I wish, I wish that my ministry would have been a hundred years ago so that I wouldn't have to compete with this Jesus guy. I mean, everyone would come and focus on me. I'd be the great prophet. Right? John says, no, it's not my task. God's put me at a particular place in the history of the unfolding of God's plan of redemption. To be like Venus in the sky, the morning star that shines brightly right before the sun comes. And then the further up the sun gets in the sky, the more and more Venus decreases in its glory till you can't see it anymore. And John says, I love to be that. I'm a marker of the rising sun. And when the sun is risen, you don't need me anymore. John says, you, you yourselves bear witness. This is what I've said all along. I am not the Christ. But I have been sent before Him. I'm not the Christ. John knows who He is, and he knows who He is not. I am the messenger that's come to prepare His way. I'm the one that stands before Him and announces His arrival. But I am not Him, and I'm not to have His place. John knows that his task is to stand at a unique, crucial moment in salvation history where there's a transition occurring now from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, from the age of the prophets to the age of the Messiah. And it's a glorious task. But he's not to cover, covet something more glorious. John is content with the position that's been assigned to him by heaven. He doesn't compare himself with the calling of others. He doesn't try to exceed his calling he understands that God has given him one assignment and Jesus another. And he's going to be faithful in his task of executing the job that God has given him to do to the glory of Jesus. John illustrates this with a parable. He says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore... This joy of mine is now complete. John here speaks of Jesus as the bridegroom. In the Old Testament, kings, in, the, in that age, kings of countries, were often considered to be married to their people and to their land. And God was the king of Israel. And faithful Israel was spoken of as the bride of the Lord. In fact, in Isaiah, the land will be called Beulah, Beulah land. And that word means married. The land will no longer be forsaken without a husband because the Lord is going to come and He's going to marry His people and be a faithful husband to take care of them and shepherd them and feed them and clothe them like a husband should. And what John the Baptist is saying here when he speaks of Jesus as the bridegroom, he is saying that Jesus is the groom. He is the Lord who was to come to marry His chosen people. That's what he's announcing Jesus as. And I know John the Evangelist would have known of the way this language was used in the early church. Speak of the church as the bride of Christ. It says something about the relationship between the church and Israel. God is not a polygamist. 
He has one bride. It's His faithful people who believe in Him. But the role of the bridegroom, John says, is not to marry the bride. In fact, ancient law had it was strict that the bridegroom, under, uh, the, the best man, the friend of the bridegroom, could under no circumstances marry the bride. The groom drops dead right there at the wedding. Bridegroom can't marry the bride. What this did was it protected him from killing off the groom so he could get the bride or stealing her away. His task was one thing. Not to attach himself to the bride, but to arrange the ceremony so that the bride and the groom could be united together in a ceremony that goes off without a hitch. And they could focus on enjoying one another. And John says, that's my task. To hear his voice, to hear the groom rejoicing in his new bride. And then my job is done to introduce them to each other, have them get married, and then I step aside. And my greatest joy is in seeing the bridegroom happy in his bride. That's what John's task was. He was not the groom. He didn't come to marry himself to the people of Israel. He came to say to God's faithful remnant, here is your bridegroom. Here is your husband. Here is the Messiah. And when the people go to him, and that seems to be happening if his ministry is increasing. John says, my ministry is fulfilled. Israel is meeting their Messiah. So, he can increase now, and I can decrease. I'm happy because Jesus is getting more and more followers and more and more glory. Let me ask you this. What does John take joy in in this passage? What does he say he rejoices in? He rejoices in the bridegroom's voice. He rejoices in Jesus Christ inviting His bride to come to Himself. He, re he rejoices in seeing Jesus be supreme over Himself. What if John would have wanted a different ministry? Or what if John would have been jealous of Jesus' glory? Wouldn't it have annulled his own ministry? I mean, his purpose in life was to point people to Jesus and see Jesus given glory. And if John wanted the glory that was Jesus, that would be the opposite of what he was supposed to do. And wouldn't it also be a questioning of God's goodness, God's sovereignty? He'd be discontent with his own position. And jealous and covetous attitudes betray a lack of belief in the wisdom of God and arrogance against the sovereignty of God. Wanting to stand in the place that God stands. When you are jealous of the way that God gifts another Christian, or the way that God uses legitimately the ministry of another Christian, or if you're jealous of Jesus Christ, which is the heart of sin, what are you saying? You're saying, I don't think God's wise in what He's assigned to me and to them. It would be better if I stood in God's place and I got to choose what gifts I got and what ministry I got and what following I got. It'd be a questioning of God's wisdom. And it would be arrogance against God's sovereignty. You know, He's not really reigning and ruling the best way. That's why I'm discontent. It'd be better off if I was in charge. That is idolatry. That's what Paul calls covetousness. It's idolatry. It's worshiping yourself more than God. Well, John says here in verse 30, He must increase, 
but I must decrease. That's the conclusion of John's words to his disciples. Now that the bridegroom is introduced, John's assignment is complete, and he can go away. Don't you love this about John? You ever seen someone whose ministry is dwindling? And what they start to do is just desperately grab to see how many people they can get to attach to themselves. I mean, even not in in church, you know, in in sports or in politics or or whatever. Someone's ministry starts to come to an end. And what do they do? They start struggling with death because they want to make sure they take everyone with them. They want glory for themselves. John says, look, I know my task. It's been done. Jesus is getting glory. He has to increase in His glory. I have to go away. I rejoice in that because it's not about me. It's about Jesus. The word must here signals a necessity. This is the determined will of God. The increase of Jesus and the decrease of John. If you are fighting against the glory of Jesus Christ, you are fighting a losing battle. Because one day every tongue will confess and every knee will bow and confess Jesus as Lord. You're going to lose. Get used to it. John doesn't speak this with the resentful attitude of a brother that begrudgingly admits that his brother, other brother is right. Yeah, he had the toy first. Yeah, John, Jesus has to increase and now I have to decrease. This is someone who is excited about the glory of Jesus Christ and whatever it takes to give Him more glory, John is willing to sacrifice even if it's his own reputation. The reason that Jesus must increase is that He is supreme over all. Why does Jesus have to increase? Because of the supremacy of Christ. And then John the Evangelist gives us commentary, I believe in verses 31 through 35, to tell us why John and all other human beings have to decrease. And why Jesus has to increase. And He gives us five ways in which Jesus Christ is supreme over everyone and everything else. First of all, Jesus is supreme in His origin. John writes, He who, is a, who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. The reason He's supreme is His origin. He comes from heaven. He comes from God. The word earth here isn't used like the word world up in verse 16. The word world has to do with the sinfulness of the creatures that inhabit, but the word earth is used in context where it speaks of finitude, you're finite, you're limited, you're passing, you're perishable. And so he says, those who come from the earth, someone like John the Baptist or Eric Shoemaker, belongs to the earth and can only speak in earthly ways. John called people to repentance, he preached the message of baptism, but in the end... He can only speak in an earthly way. He's finite and he's limited. But Jesus does not belong to the earth. We know from John chapter 1 that He was in the beginning and He was with God and He was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is eternal God. Come from heaven. So He is not limited in what He can do or in what He can reveal. He is supreme. Flowing from that, is, number two, Jesus is supreme in His witness. Your origin affects your witness. If you're from the earth, you can only speak an earthly witness. 
But Jesus is from heaven. Like I said, John spoke in an earthly way, but John did not reveal God. We did not see the grace and truth revealed as we've seen the glory of God in the Son. He didn't reveal the promise of the renewal with water and the Spirit. He doesn't reveal the counsels of heaven. But Jesus speaks as one who is from heaven. He bears witness, we read, to what He has seen and what He has heard, even though no one receives His testimony. Remember back in verse 13, Jesus said that no one ascended into heaven except Him who descended from heaven. Jesus says, I'm unique in the witness I can give because nobody on earth has gone up into heaven and been able to come back and tell us what it's like. I've come down from heaven. It's my origin. I can tell you what I've seen with my eyes and what I've heard with my ears because it's the place I come from. So His testimony about God is supreme over John's. Because John speaks the message given to him. Jesus speaks the message that he has seen and he has heard. And yet the maker of the world came into the world and the world did not know him. Yet John says no one receives his testimony. That's not meant to be taken in an absolute way. Because in verse 33, John speaks of those who receive his testimony. And those who receive his testimony set, sets his seal to this, that God is true. Jesus affirms throughout the Gospel that He says and He does only what God says and does. So whatever you hear Jesus say is what God says. Whatever you see Jesus do is what God does. And so, if you reject the testimony and the ministry of Jesus Christ, you're rejecting what God has said, and you're rejecting what God has done, and you are calling God a liar. Because the words of Jesus can be that united with God. And if you say that what Jesus says is true, if you believe that He is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, like John bore witness to, if you believe that He was lifted up as the Son of Man and He died in our place for our sins, if you believe that you must believe in Him to have eternal life, you're saying what God has said is true. And you, you set your seal to that. You put your stamp of approval on that message. But if you do not honor the Son, Jesus says, you do, not honor Je you do not honor the Father. To reject Jesus is to reject God. And to believe in Jesus is to believe in God. Third, Jesus is supreme in His portion of the Spirit. Why does Jesus utter the very words of God? Look at verse 34. For He whom God has sent utters the words of God because He gives the Spirit without measure. Now some interpret this to mean he gives the Spirit without measure, that Jesus is the one who gives the Spirit without measure. He pours out His Spirit on the church on Pentecost, which is true. But that word for there signals to us that this is a reason. The reason that Jesus utters the words of God is because He gives the Spirit without measure. I think the best interpretation of that is God gives the Spirit without measure. God the Father has given to Jesus His Holy Spirit without measure, so that His witness and His portion of the Spirit is unlike anybody else's. Remember in chapter 1, what was the signal to John that Jesus was the Messiah? The Spirit descends on Him and remains on Him. The Old Testament prophets, the Spirit could come and go and come and go, but this one's going to have an anointing of the Spirit that is unlike any other in history. Rabbis were convinced that God gave His Holy Spirit to His prophets in measured amounts 
that were equal to the task that He had assigned them. For a great task, they had a great portion of the Spirit. For a small task, they had a small portion. probably came from the Elijah-Elisha thing. I want a double portion of your spirits. But Jesus is not portioned out the Spirit. He is given the Spirit without measure. That means He stands supreme above every other servant of God in history. He's supreme in His origin, in His witness, and in His portion of the Spirit. Fourth, Jesus is the supreme object of the Father's love. John writes in verse 35, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Love is what characterizes the relationship between the Father and the Son. We're told in verse, 13, in verse 16 that God loved the world only time. We read that here in this context. The, the emphasis of God's love in the Gospel of John is not His love for the fallen world. It's His love for the Son. Again and again and again we read of how the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father and the greatness of love is measured by actions. And what does the Father do here? He gives His Son whom He loves the Spirit without measure. He, gives, he has given all things into His hand. He loves the Son so much that He gives His Son everything. One day, because of Jesus loving obedience to the point of death on the cross to His Father, God will have every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. He has handed over to Him everything. And this tells us that the eternal plan of redemption finds its ultimate source in the love between the Father and the Son. That is what the history of the world is about. That is what the history of redemption is about. God loves His Son so much that He says, I am going to redeem a people to be your beautiful bride and I'm going to raise a new heavens and a new earth to be your kingdom and with your bride you can rule over this kingdom forever. I love you, Son. And I'm giving you everything. It's not about me, Jesus. Only me. There is no greater thing. I'm your all. I'm the best. I'm your joy. Oh, I'm the best. And you love me, Lord. Oh, it's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you. That's what history is. It's the display of the Father's love for the Son. We make it all about Number five, Jesus is supreme in His authority. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. That's the language of authority. Paul tells us a couple times, the author of Hebrews tells us that God has put all things in subjection under the feet of Jesus. Everything will one day be under His rule. The condemned, rebellious, unrepentant enemies of God will be crushed by His foot in the winepress of God's wrath. And the redeemed will feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. He is unmatched. He is supreme. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And if you do not believe in Him, you are rebelling against Him. You are not obeying the Son. Before we get to that last verse, I want to I ask you again, what is your attitude toward the glory of Jesus Christ? These five areas of supremacy make it clear 
that the only appropriate and fitting response is to bow before Jesus and value His supremacy over your own and be willing to decrease and suffer to see His name magnified. You cannot serve two masters, Jesus said. You will love one and you will hate the other. You cannot live for your glory and the glory of Jesus Christ. You must choose one of those two. You can live for yourself and be crushed, or you can live for the glory of God and have the reward of seeing the glory of God. Let me ask you these questions. How do you respond when you see the Lord using someone in a remarkable way to bring glory to Jesus Christ? A church just grows up and flourishes and their preaching is rock-solid, Christ-centered, Bible-expositing. You say, well, they must be doing something wrong. They're just there because they have money. Or do you say, praise God! Jesus is being glorified. Even if it's not through me. Praise God. How do you respond when you see someone else in the church being used for the glory of Jesus in ways that you're not? How do you respond when somebody else, another Christian, is remarkably gifted in ways that you aren't, when another receives a calling that you don't, when you have to suffer but they get comfort, when another person gets public influence and effectiveness that you haven't seen, when another is recognized for their services but you go unnoticed? You respond by saying, if the name of the Lord is praised, praise the name of the Lord. Or do you say, I'm not getting my due. No one's noticing me. This isn't fair. You know how long I've served? You know how long I've worked? I deserve to have my name someplace. Okay, Cain. Going to kill your brother now? Your words, your actions slander. Paul commands us to avoid and kill such jealous and self-centered attitudes. Paul tells the Galatians, walk by the Spirit and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. And in that long list of the desires of the flesh, Paul lists enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. All those things reflecting an inner attitude that says, I want what someone else has. I want what God has given to them and I'm going to be their enemy so that I can get it. Paul says, clearly in that passage, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, that we need to put covetousness to death. We need to kill it. And what we should do instead is cultivate hearts and minds that reflect the attitude of John the Baptist. He is a wonderful example here. He must increase, but I must decrease. Whatever it takes for the glory of God to be displayed, whatever it takes to help people love Jesus more, leaving my home to go to Indonesia to share the Gospel. If I must decrease, let Him increase. Our goal in life, in family, in church, in community, should be to bring Jesus Christ all glory and honor, even at our own decrease. And we must cultivate attitudes of humility and contentment that prize the glory of Jesus above all things and rejoice with those who rejoice. The question is now, How do you do that? How do you kill jealousy? 
How do you kill covetousness? How do you kill the anger that churns up in your hearts when you see another pastor with a prosperous ministry at some convention and you say, I want what he has? How do you kill that? You don't. You don't go home and grit your teeth and say, I'm going to try really hard now to not be jealous. I'm going to be content. I'm going to love Jesus' glory. It doesn't work. It's not where salvation comes from through your works. It's not where sanctification comes from. You don't just try harder. What did Joshua say at the beginning of a series on God and sex? He said that abstinence, education by itself, shows no difference in the results of teenagers staying pure. Churches that just do, don't have sex, have teenagers that have sex before marriage just as often as the secular world does. And what was his reason why he said that? He says, because we're telling them what they shouldn't do, but we're not giving them any joy, anything good to replace that desire with. They want to be satisfied. And sex offers the promise of satisfaction. And if we just say, don't do it, they stay hungry. We need to give them this big, bold, beautiful vision of God. And say, be satisfied in God. And then you will stay pure because God is better than sin. That's how you fight jealousy. How does John fight jealousy? How does he not fall into the attitude of his disciples who say, but everyone's going after Jesus. John rests in the sovereignty of God and he understands and he loves the supremacy of Christ. Covetousness and pride are killed and humility and contentedness are brought to life by resting in the sovereign wisdom and goodness of God and by seeing and savoring the supremacy of Christ in all things. I, I, I'm intentional with that word savoring there. Because it's not... You've seen this morning the supremacy of Christ. If you heard any words I said, if you read this passage, you have seen on some level the supremacy of Christ. The question now is, do you love it? Do you love His supremacy over yourself? That's the million dollar question right there. The battle with jealousy is won by finding Jesus' glory more satisfying than your own. And this happens by going to the Word of God and praying for the Spirit to give you eyes to see, to see and a heart to understand and just studying what God has revealed about who He is for us in Jesus and being satisfied with that vision. And if you're not in God's Word, if you're not looking at Jesus Christ, if you're not reveling in who He is, you are probably seething with bitterness and resentment and jealousy and boredom. We need to delight in Him most so we can sing the song we're going to sing. I'm content to let the world go by to know no gain or loss. My sinful self, my only shame. My glory, all the cross. Of course, this passage wasn't written primarily to deal with jealousy. It's a good application. It's not the main purpose. John says he wrote so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's where this passage ends. Jesus is unique and He is unmatched in the supremacy. He's the Messiah, there is no other. He's the Bridegroom, there is no other. He came from above, there is no other. He has first-hand eye knowledge of, of, of what heavenly realities and the plan of God is. No one else. He is given the Spirit without measure. He is the supreme object of the Father's love. He is given 
The Father has given all things to the Son and no one else can say that of Himself. That means that Jesus is unique and you are called to respond to Him. Your destiny and your condition right now flows from what you think of the glory of Jesus Christ. This puts an urgent demand on humanity. There is no alternative to who Jesus is. No other religion offers for us an equal to Jesus Christ. And therefore, there are only two responses. You can have genuine faith or defiant disobedience. You can believe His testimony or you can disobey His authority. You can believe Jesus is the Son of Man. He's the King. He was crucified on the cross for my sins. He was raised on the third day. He is my only righteousness and I am all sin. And I go to the Father and I plead with the Father. I believe. I believe Jesus is my King. I'm turning away from my sins. I'm going to follow Him. I trust in Him. Forgive me in His name. What's the opposite of unbelief? Or what's the opposite of belief? Unbelief? Not here in this passage. The opposite of believing is disobeying. If you don't believe what the Son has called us to believe, if you don't believe what the Spirit has inspired John to write, you are disobeying Jesus. You are in rebellion against the King who has all authority. Do you love Him? Search your heart right now. Do you love Him? I'm not asking, do you like songs? Do you like church? Do you like your family? Do you like your friends? Do you like the activities? Do you love Jesus? If not, you are in disobedience to Him. And this disobedience deserves punishment. And corresponding to these two responses of belief and disobedience are two conditions, life and death. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Notice he speaks of these conditions as present realities. The believer has eternal life right now, and the disobedient one has God's wrath remaining on him right now. You, my friend, are not in a neutral condition this morning. You either have life and are going to see the kingdom, or you are under the condemnation of God. And His fierce anger at sending His Son to a fallen world and they didn't want anything to do with Him, that anger remains on you in your condition. And if you perish without believing, you will drop into the hand of God in the winepress of His wrath. This isn't to deny anything future. This is to say that the future has begun now. Eternal life has come. You can have it now if you will only believe. And God's wrath is on you if you don't. You're not neutral. One day, those who believe are going to be raised from the dead, given new, eternal, powerful, spiritual bodies to live in a new heavens and new earth. And those who do not obey will be raised physically from the dead and thrown into the winepress of the wrath of God. So if you're a Christian this morning, I want you to be encouraged. If you love the glory of Jesus, if you love to hear about Him crucified for your sins because you know that you're a sinner, if you love the message that you are forgiven by grace through faith in Him, God's wrath is not on you. It's gone. It's satisfied. Jesus has taken it away. The Father is no longer angry with you. His wrath doesn't abide on you. He smiles on you with the pleasure with which He smiles on His Son because you're covered in the righteousness of His Son. But if you're not a believer... 
you are in a place of grave danger and consider yourself duly warned, God's wrath is on you. And you must repent and believe in the Son. And we, as a church, have an urgent need to go to the world on which the wrath of God abides and proclaim to them that there are two ways to live. They may believe in the Son and have life, or they may disobey God's anointed King and suffer the wrath of God. Father, thank You for Your help this morning to preach. I pray that You would send Your Spirit now to bring birth from above to dead, sinful souls, to bring revival to those who know You and love You, to bring reformation in our lives so that the increase of the glory of Christ might be our only boast and goal. Oh, Father, convict us of our sin and turn us to Jesus. He deserves the glory. Amen.